This is the Disability Visibility Podcast with your host, Alice Wong. Greetings, Earthlings. Welcome to the Disability Visibility Podcast. Conversations on disability politics, culture, and media. I'm your host, Alice Wong. Today, I'm in conversation with my friends, Andrew Pulvich and Greg Baratan. The three of us are true partners in Crypt the Vote, an online movement encouraging the political participation of disabled people that we started in 2016. You'll hear us talk about the origins of crypto votes, the differences between the 2016 and 2020 election on disability policies and engagements, and looking ahead at the Biden Harris administration. Please note that our conversation took place in December 2020, a few weeks after the presidential election. One other thing, I am super excited about the next episode of this podcast, which will be number 100. Can you believe? It's going to be a super-sized episode with a very important announcement. So stay tuned. Are you ready? Away we go. Andrew and Greg, thank you so much for being on my podcast today. I was wondering if you both could just introduce yourselves first. Um, I'm Andrew Polreng, and I'm a disability activist, mostly online. Um, I used to work in independent living, and now I'm a freelance writer on disability topics, and I also co-coordinate CryptoVote. Greg Baritam, I'm, I'm also a disability activist uh, online and elsewhere. Um, I do work in independent living as the director of advocacy. Um, and I am very proud to, to partner with both of you on CryptoVote as well. I feel the same, Greg. And I feel like, uh, you know, there's just so much power that happens when people come together and uh, Trip the Vote has been one of the most fulfilling and, you know, fun things I've done in the last, you know, four years. And I'm just so thankful for the three of us. Uh, you know, before we get started uh, to talk about Trip the Vote and activism, you know, I want to say that's, you know, we're in the ninth month of the pandemic in the United States. You know, I just wanted to check in and say, like, and ask how you two are faring so far, and, you know, what do you think this pandemic reveals, especially to non-disabled people, about ableism and accessibility? Sure. Um, I mean, the, the pandemic's been a ride. Uh, I spent, I want to say, the first four months of it at home, which was nice. And I can't say traumatic at all because 
I, I like being at home and I am a bit of a homebody and an introvert. And, and so while I feel for the people that struggled to, with social distancing, I, 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 I found it quite easy to spend 90% of my time with my family. Um, I think it has revealed a lot about ableism in this country and we've started to see some shifts that I think many of us worked for for a long time. I mean, I, you know, much of my work is, is around getting people out of nursing facilities and back into the community and advocating for the systemic change needed to make that happen. And I think we've started to see a lot more buy-in to the fact that congregate settings are just dangerous and that this model, which we in the disability community have long said is broken. We're starting to see buy-in on other levels from people recognizing the way this is broken and that the pandemic really just highlighted this instead of this being something that was horrible about the pandemic. Um, and I, I mean, if, if there's a silver lining to this whole thing for me, that movement's been a, a big part of it. Um, you know, we've got groups talking about abolishing nursing facilities and I, I, I love that. Um, that that's sort of where my head is at with with much of this. I agree. I think uh, the conversation on prison abolition is really uh, you know broadening to really talk about you know all kinds of charged cities. I think that's really healthy and really encouraging. How about you, Andrew? Um, I will echo a lot of what Greg said. I mean, I, I'm also a homebody and have found on a personal level that the restrictions have not been that difficult for me. Some practical difficulties are piling up. Um, I still haven't gotten my hair cut since March when I'm wearing a cap right now. Um, so, but that's kind of small potatoes. I don't have that mental anguish that I know a lot of people have. Um, and I don't say that to brag. That's just the kind of person I happen to be. It's like a privilege. And I try to be more understanding of, of folks that are struggling more and, and maybe don't always follow the rules because of that. So I think that's something we can learn a little bit from too, some of us. You know, my own area uh, actually has not been hit as hard as most areas have, or a lot of areas have, although I, I don't know what's going to happen in the next couple of months. Um, so there's that. Um, as far as like, you know, uh, larger changes and in, in, uh, people understanding ableism, um, I agree. I think, I think at the very least, if we're not going to see congregate settings abolished, we're at least going to see, we, we're at least seeing a, a new set of reasons why they're not good. Um, and that alone, if people just begin to have it in their minds, as a matter of course, and understanding that they are basically not good, uh, not optimal, that alone is a, is a big is a shift, right? It's, it, you don't even need to, I mean, I'd like to see them abolished in some way, but even without that, when people stop thinking of them as some kind of, you know, 
semi-satisfying thing, if they now start to associate it with the possibility of infectious disease, and that's going to drive people, some people away. And I think that's ultimately good. The thing I don't know about and the thing I'm, I'm most interested in is what the reaction to the pandemic is telling us about how people are di- with disabilities are actually viewed and valued or not valued in society. I'm usually not so much of a pessimist, but I have to say it, it's reawakened the idea that on a fundamental, in some fundamental way, we are expendable because people do seem to be willing to say, if not outright, then, then underneath the surface, you know what, maybe we can't solve the pandemic and maybe it's okay if some of us die. And, uh, you know, that's real dark, but I think that's underneath a lot of the kind of the resistance to the idea that the pandemic's even a problem. People just don't think it's that big a deal if older people and, and ill people and disabled people die in higher numbers. So I, I agree. I think, I mean, just today I saw a, a newspaper story where a, a major hospital administrator, I can't remember if it was John Hopkins or Harvard Medical School or something like this, said that if things continue to get worse, we're going to have to ration care uh, or go to a triage model, which means rationing mm-hmm. care. And all of this sort of tells me repeatedly that that the larger society still does not value our community, does not see us as adding value to the world. And I mean, that's I, as offensive as that is, that is is something I, I've I needed reminding of. It's part of disability rights rhetoric to say we're not valued, you know, we're expendable. But it's not just rhetoric, it's real. <laughs> Just to switch gears a little bit, uh, you know, this is the second presidential election that we experienced together as the co-partners of Crypto Votes. Yeah, for people who are familiar with this campaign, Greg, I was wondering uh, if you could tell people a little bit about our origin story, because this really started from you, from your idea. I, I mean, I you know, we've talked about this many times, I think, but, you know, we were all actually talking about the, the lack of disability in the 2016 campaign. And, and I think I had spotted tweets from the three of us almost like at the same moment that said the exact same thing, saying, where is our community in all this? This was probably after one of the, the early primary debates. And I, I approached the two of you. Uh, we'd never worked together on anything. We knew each other from Twitter, and, and we'd all interacted, I think, in various campaigns and various over various issues on Twitter and just said, can, can we start some sort of campaign around this? Because our community needs to be a part of this. This is, you know, the American political system cannot ignore what, 25% of the population. 
And I mean, Alice, you know, uh, as always came up with the amazing hashtag for us. And I think that helped us so much because the, I mean, let's face it, the hashtag catches people's eye. It, it, it gets people's attention and it's memorable. And I think while we had an idea of what we wanted to do, I think coming up with that was, was central to making it work. You know, once we announced and started the disability community bought in and the disability community took over the hashtag and made it work. People were tweeting 24 hours a day, having conversations, live tweeting events, um, asking questions of their their politicians on a state, local, and national level. Um, and, and that's what made it work. I mean, that's why four years later, we were having chats with presidential candidates. I mean, you know, without that community, without the amazing people that come in chat after chat and, and are on that hashtag day after day, I, I don't think it would have worked. I don't think it would have been as powerful. I mean, we, we, we've talked about this, but I, I think, you know, as much as we may have done to organize things, the disability community is the real star of Crypt the Vote. I totally agree. And uh, it is pretty wild to think that at the very beginning of 2020, pre-pandemic, you know, I thought this election was going to be the main thing that I was going to be focused on. You know, we had two chats with Senator Elizabeth Warren and Pete Buttigieg, which was kind of a big deal. And who knew how things would unfold? Uh, Andrew, how would you, I guess, explain what CryptoVote is in a nutshell for somebody who's never heard of it before? Well, it's, it's a hashtag used on Twitter to tie together a sort of an ongoing conversation about disability and policy and politics. And the hashtag ties it together, you know, mechanically. It's the way you add the hashtag to the thing you say, and everybody gets to read it if they follow the hashtag. And, you know, our goal has been to just foster discussion amongst ourselves and then to make that conversation noticeable by politicians, people running for office, people in office, and sometimes to reach out to them directly and give them an avenue to talk to us directly, which is, is, is the thing that you were saying actually started to happen really earlier this year, finally, um, with those chats we had with the candidates. Um, but yeah, that's, that's it in a nutshell. It's, it's an ongoing conversation. And the fact that this conversation has grown over the years, you know, I think this is a thing that, you know, I don't know, for people who are just uh, unfamiliar, I mean, we can't make something happen, like by magic, you know, become a thing unless people actually connect with it. So, you know, I do think that a lot of what we've done has been really intentional and just, you know, baby steps, like the way that we 
deal started twenty sixteen. Things grew and it took time. And I think that's you know what's been so satisfying to see. You know, here we are four years later to see this incredibly vibrant community of movement. I want to ask you both, since we started in 2016, what are some of the major shifts you've seen by candidates compared from then to now that you've noticed in terms of the way they engage and talk about disability? I think the way I would characterize it when we started, disability was a tick box for most politicians. It was It was something they had to acknowledge or cover to an extent but not something they needed to go in depth for it was not a community that they recognized in any way as a constituency it was more something used to signal their own goodness um in the way we see so often in in, in inspiration porn, mm-hmm. uh, it was it was used to say, "Look, I'm I'm so good, a I, I, I candidate. I care about the disabled." You could start to see the shift in the 2018 midterms a little, but 2020, you started to see, particularly with the presidential candidates, people taking the disability community very seriously, and the, and the policies were well thought out. They weren't just you know, a, a quick page slapped together on a website. It was detailed, well thought out, to the point where they're getting into the nitty gritty of, of of policies like Lead K, which is language equality and acquisition for deaf kids, which is a, a very small bill that's traveling across the country, but one that's very important and to the community and 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 growing in in, in popularity, but. I think the fact that we're seeing them get into that level of detail is something that that's amazing. Um, I, I don't know that we could have expected that four years ago, um, but I think it definitely was a gradual shift that we saw happening. I think in the 2018 midterms, we saw people pressuring politicians on particular issues to get answers to see where they stood. I mean, and, you know, there were there were specific issues that politicians got pressed on in those midterms, in in ways that they probably hadn't been before. And I think the the thing we saw in twenty twenty was that people came out with these really well thought out plans. And we talked about this when it came out. the The Biden team came out with their plan a bit later than everyone else, and it was sort of disappointing to the community, even though. In 2016, that would have probably been the best plan we'd seen. And so I, I like seeing how the, the, the Overton window, the, the, the idea of, of what is needed has shifted in that time. Yeah, and I think one thing that's really notable, at least to me, it is but is that there's more disabled people working on campaigns and playing a really active role in the yep. formation of these platforms. 
their policies. I mean, we have Bobby Doris Pierce, who originally was on Senator Warren's campaign, who is now on the Biden campaign. We have Emily Ford, who was on the Buttigieg campaign. We have a lot of other disabled people who have been really involved in, you know, giving inputs, sharing their expertise. And, you know, I also want to emphasize that, you know, disabled people have been involved behind the scenes and, you know, front and center for decades. It's just now, it's a culmination of a lot of things that, you know, people have built over time. Uh, Andrew, what's your take on then and now? Well, yeah, I agree with all of this. Um, and I think, you know, it's it's hard to know for sure the effect that we had and the role that we played. Um, and I agree, Alice, that, that I, I definitely believe that we weren't the cause of all the progress. I think that we maybe were an avenue that nobody had really planned for. There, there have been groups and people ready to jump in and really shape these great new policies uh, to make them more, more substantial. Um, and they went in and they, they did that. Uh, and people that take over leadership roles and campaigns, and they did that too. I don't know that they had in mind anything like this particular thing as, a, in, as another tool or another sort of opening. And I, I do think that to some extent they use that. Maybe, maybe it might have been useful at times for a more organized policy group, for instance, to be able to, to tell candidates, by the way, if you looked at Twitter lately, you know, people really do care about this stuff. It's not just us. You know, all over the country, there are grassroots people who care. And that probably helped here and there. Um, it certainly got people involved who had the inclination to be involved in, in disability politics, but didn't really know how to get started. Um, because we heard that directly from people saying, I wanted to get involved for a long time, but I didn't know how to get started. Thank you for doing this. Um, yeah, and, and one of the things I'll say about the, the better better like platforms and stuff put out by candidates is, you know, there was a lot of love going around about the policies from various candidates, but also criticism from the community and debate even within the community over what should and shouldn't have been in them, uh, what bits were good, what bits were bad. Um, often it was a mix. Candidates got, uh, you know, candidates who put out policies and you could tell that they thought they were just going to get nothing but praise because they put out a detailed platform. We're kind of like taken aback to get pushback on stuff. That's a good sign too, because it means the fact that we have disagreements. You can't really have disagreements over empty policy. You can't have disagreements over I support the disabled. We're going to be in a new administration, and I was wondering, what are some issues that you both are truly interested in under this new administration? 
Did you? I know that you wrote a piece. Dear Forbes, about the next steps to disability policy under the Biden Harris administration. Do you want to share just a few of your personal kind of interests and priorities? Yeah, I, I hate four main things and their personnel, as in who do you hire to take care of disability issues in the administration, um, COVID, getting through that in a way that it tries to. Uh, cut back on some of the injustice, particular injustice on disabled people. Undoing bad policies, you know, it's specific things that have been done in the last four or so years that have been bad for the disability community, where, where it's possible to undo them relatively easily, maybe, with executive orders and things. And then trying to get a start on some of the bigger, I call them bread and butter disability issues. I don't know if that's a perfect term. But the ones where if you do make a change that the vast majority of people with disabilities will materially notice it. And I'm, I think of things like Social Security and SSI and SSDI and, and its relationship to Medicare and Medicaid and working. Like if, you'd have made, if, you, if they could make it so that more of us could work while still collecting benefits um, that's something that's, that millions of disabled people have been complaining about forever and literally have, like, never had a hope of that ever changing, right? All we, all we hope for is uh, being able to tiptoe through the work incentive system with expert help, which is great when you can get it, but we never, you know, people barely ever talk about changing it. And now, again, finally... In, in candidate policies, they we're talking about actually changing it. More benefits. Uh, you can have them for longer. Mm -hmm. you, you know, you can earn more without losing them. Mm -hmm. you know? And again, that may take a long time to do, because messing with Social Security is like really, really hard to do, even if it's done you know, to a good way. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that's a, and that, and of course, you know, these ongoing issues with uh, access to home and community-based services so that people don't have to uh, go into a congregate care because they need help every day just mm -hmm. to live. That's another bread and butter issue that's that is much, had much more activity over the years, but still isn't finished. You know, so yeah, I think there, there are a bunch of things that are probably on the immediate horizon, that, and that even could be done with tweaks and, and emphasis differences that don't necessarily even depend on Congress, and those should be done because there's no excuse not to. And then if you get through that, let's tackle, seriously tackle some of these bigger projects. Thank you, Andrew. How about you, Greg? I mean, I, I, all of those things are, are probably on my list. I think that home and community-based services is, is near the top. I think we've seen in, you know, the we talked at the beginning, the pandemic has highlighted the, the problems in congregate care. Um, and, and the disability community has always known about this. We've always talked about this. And yet we still have to fight case by case to get people into the community. Olmstead is litigated literally one person at a time. We have not got a system for ensuring that anyone who wants community service, community, home and community-based services gets them. Uh, you have to litigate 
on a case-by-case basis. And this is problematic. I mean, people have a right to live in the community. There is no one that cannot be better served in the community than in a nursing facility. No one. And I'd love to see a politician recognize it. I'd love to see them move on healthcare. I think I don't see it happening because Biden's committed to mainly expanding Obamacare. Uh, but for example, we've seen in, in New York, we've got a, a bill, New York Health, that has a chance of passing this year that I'd love to see pass because it builds in, it's, it's a Medicare for all bill that builds in long-term care in the most elegant of ways. And it will expand who gets access to home and community-based services. It will prioritize home and community-based services over institutional settings. I'd love to see more of that from politicians. I'd love to see it in this administration. I I don't know. I'm fairly skeptical about this administration moving on disability issues. I, I think throughout the campaign, we weren't their priority. They put out a a disability policy after we hounded them. They did a good job of it. I mean, it's a, it's a decent policy. I'm not trying to attack the policy. I just don't see the commitment from them on actually prioritizing the community. An administration only gets so many priorities to, to carry out in its first term. And, um, but I don't see much of what's in their disability policy as something they're going to prioritize. And I hope I'm wrong, and I hope we hold their feet to the fire and and push them on these things. So on that note, I want to thank both of you for uh, the last four years, but also just your friendship. Thank you, Greg. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Allison. Uh, been a pleasure. It's been a highlight of my life too. I'll tell you that. Certainly, the last for several years, for sure. And one of these days, we need to actually meet in person. Yeah. If not twenty twenty one, twenty twenty two. There you go. This podcast is a production of the Disability Visibility Project. Did all our community. Dedicated to creating, sharing, and amplifying disability media culture. All episodes of Treating Their Stress Trips are available at disabilityvisibilityproject.com slash podcast. You can also find out more about Greg and Andrew on my website. The audio producer for this episode is me, Alice Wong. Introduction by Latif Patron. Deep music by Vulture Sports Jam. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Pandora, or Google Podcasts. You can also support our podcast for dollar bus, dollar four by going to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash dvp that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash dvp thanks for listening
and see you on the internet. Bye.